Welcome to Israel War Briefing, a podcast from the Jewish Chronicle offering deep insight into the crisis in the Jewish state as it continues to unfold. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle and author of Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. In each episode, I'll be asking an expert commentator for their analysis of the latest developments and reflections on what comes next. Today is Tuesday, the 19th of December, the 74th day of the war. Uh, I'm joined by Chen Mazik here in the Jewish Chronicle offices. Uh, Chen will be familiar to almost everybody watching, I think. He's a very prominent social media influencer, a speaker and an author. Uh, and he gives an important voice to Jews of Arabic and North African heritage in particular. He's also a senior fellow at the Tel Aviv Institute, which is a think tank dedicated towards combating anti-Semitism online. Uh, and Chen's recent book, which I've got here, uh, The Wrong Kind of Jew, a Mizrahi Manifesto, uh, is out now. It's been out for about a, about a year. Yeah. But this is my copy, so you can't have this one. Yeah. Uh, so, Chen, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And I've been a big fan of the podcast, your work, and it's just um, an honor to join you today. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you again for joining us, particularly when we're still under this dark cloud of October the 7th, which isn't going away any anytime soon. So we'll talk about that. But first of all, I just wanted to ask you about this line in your book where you write, um, I have the audacity to know I'm a bad Jew and feel good about it. What do you mean by that? <laughs> um, I'm sure many of your viewers and maybe, maybe even you would connect to the idea that today to stand up for Israel and to be proud of your, uh, being proud of be, being part of the Jewish people um, doesn't come, it doesn't go without its, um, its cost. It's, it's very taxing. Um, people would often push back against you. Um, in fact, being anti-Israel and Jewish is probably the most popular thing you can do today. Uh, you'll for be young people in particular. for young people in particular. Yes, you'll be um, especially in the artistic community, uh, creative community. You would get more opportunities. People would celebrate you, um, would use you as um, a token um, to uh, promote some terrible and vile opinions. Um, but they have a Jewish person, a um, what Hannah Arendt uh, called um, a, a court Jew or exceptional Jew, that you are so um, you're so unique because you are proudly Jewish and yet you are not like the rest of the Jews, uh, and that really elevates you. So for me to be um, a bad Jew, to be um, a person that while I don't keep many of the Jewish um, uh, religious practices, um, and I um, um, my partner is a, is a non-Jewish man. <laughs> Um, and my identity is not really the type that you would see on TV or you would read about. Um, and, and I'm very proud of all of it. And I'm proud to support Israel as well. It's funny because you would think that if you're sort of on the periphery of Judaism, as in uh, you're not religious, particularly um, gay, secular, um, creative, you would be in a demographic that would be pro-Palestinian. How do you explain the fact that you're making the opposite argument? Yeah, I, and it's it's funny because when I first left Israel um, to go go abroad, it was right after my military service. Um, I traveled to Seattle, and I thought the Pacific Northwest is known to be very progressive and open. And for me, it was was supposed to be a very welcoming environment. I'm queer. Um, by the definition of their uh, of the American racial uh, structure, I'm a person of color. Um, my father is uh, Tunisian, North African. My mom is Iraqi. Um, and, and I'm also, you know, a minority in this country. So 
by all of their the structure structure that I read about and I thought that I'm coming into, I thought that it would be celebrated and I was surprised that it wasn't. Um, for me, it makes total sense that if you are Jewish and if you are queer or LGBTQ and you are a minority, you would understand why you have to support your people. And looking at any other minority community, at the black community, LGBTQ community, women, um, all of those minority communities, maybe women are still considered, um, I mean, still uh, um, oppressed in some ways in society. Um, so I would, I would think that, you know, we, we would have to support one another. That's what we're doing. I think that's why we are receiving such a cold shoulder from many of those uh, minority communities and their leadership, uh, because they really can't understand. I had conversations with them. They can't understand why Jewish people from within our community are continuously against the well-being of this community and why those are the voices that are being elevated. We're seeing it in many other communities. Like I'm seeing it in the gay community. There's some gay people with homophobic views or that they think, you know, gay people shouldn't be allowed to marry or gay people shouldn't be allowed to have equal rights. And they say that for uh, for clout. But it's really, I think for the Jewish community, it's it's so um, permanent that Jews that are in the periphery, that are the ones that make all those horrific accusations uh, and, and attacks on other Jews coming from a place of privilege are not being challenged by our community, but for how privileged they are, that they can make those uh, claims and, and attack Israel, and, and they don't need, they don't think that they need Israel, and that's why they're going so hard against um, against our, our people. But we need to call them out. That's that's what I think. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Hannah Arendt before because she talked about in the banality of evil, the book about the trial of Adolf, right. uh, of, of Adolf Eichmann, about the moral inversion that took place in Nazi Germany. This is one of the passages of her writing that's always struck me so so deeply, where she talks about how just as in normal times, people have in the back of their mind maybe an instinct to do something bad, like kill or steal or whatever, but they resist it. In Nazi Germany, the opposite was true. So you were told, thou shalt kill, thou shalt steal. And in the back of your mind, you might have a resistance, or maybe I shouldn't be doing it, but they learn how to resist that. Mm. And I feel like, of course, I don't want to make comparisons really about the Nazi period and now too much, but at the same time, that upside-down logic, whereby it's kind of seen as a good thing for Jews to oppose their own homeland, and people like you, who are doing the natural thing of standing up for our homeland, which happens to be the only democracy in the Middle East, the only one that welcomes gay people and women and minorities, that people like you are supposed to be bad. It's this upside down world, isn't it? Absolutely, and you know, I've, I went back to reading the banal the um, the origins of totalitarianism, rather, um, and also, of course, the banality of even evil is such a appropriate way to describe what Hamas has been doing and, and those people that have no moral boundaries. And, and I mean, I don't want to go too far into the com comparing them to the Nazis, um, but there's definitely roots there. Um, but I, and, and I went back and read it and it was so sobering to see that back in the 60s, she was describing a phenomenon that we are experiencing today. She called them the exceptional Jews. Um, she said it's a uh, it's Jews that are being told by European societies that they're not like the rest of the Jews, that they are exceptional. And she said they didn't really know what to do with this compliment of being exceptional, but and yet it's not really a compliment because you have to present your Jewish identity, but you have to re resist it and, and attack it and um, shun your own community. And I think that's what we're seeing today. And it's uh, as you said, it's, it should be natural for anyone that supports civil rights, equality. Um, I mean, you know, my partner and I have... Uh, LGBTQ friends, we had trans friend that now went out and protesting with for Palestine. And 
and I spoke to her and I said, you know, your, the medicine you're taking, the, the hormone um, that you're taking are produced in Israel. And uh, if you're calling out to boycott Israel, why are you still taking them? Why didn't you say a word about October 7th? And her answer was just, I mean, it was terrible. I had to block her at the end. But it's just very disheartening that we have been standing up for Black Lives Matter. We stood up for LGBTQ rights. And it never matters to me. It still doesn't matter to me where they are standing on the Jewish community or in Israel. Because for me, it's the just thing to do. That's what we're doing. We're standing up for minorities. We're standing up for equality. Um, but it's just really disheartening to see so many voices um, attacking us at this time. Well, it's, it's interesting because I feel like I'm really fascinated by your perspective because from my point of view, it's a little bit easier because I'm against identity politics in general. You know, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm from the, 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 the political position where I don't feel comfortable with the worldview that is obsessed with slavery and colonialism and systemic racism uh, and gender, radical gender ideology uh, and identity, identity politics in general. And with that usually comes a pro-Palestinian bias. Mm. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, my morality is, is, is based on, um, on, on openness and equality, but not in, in that sort of obsessive identity right. politics frame. Whereas you're, it seems to me, a little bit more from within the progressive world where you take on some of those ideas, mm -hmm. uh, but it feels like when you get to the Jewish element, you come up against something that you don't like. And so it feels like you're in a difficult position there somehow. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, uh, while I do, I, I don't think that identity politics is positive or it's um, or it helps us, but I do think that we need to, that's my perspective, is that there are groups in society that are that have unfair uh, position uh, that they start from, and we need to be, to recognize racism and um, LGBTQ phobia and also anti-Semitism. And I think, you know, the recent two months, um, more than two months, have pushed me very much to be against it because of so many leaders within those communities that I stood up for have been vehemently anti-Semitic. Um, but I never, I'm never going to turn against them in my perspective because the way that I see the world is that we have to take care of every minority. Um, and I also don't see Jewish identity as privileged one, which I think that's what um, many in the progressive um, circle is doing because when you think about it, the reason that they are anti-Israel is because they see Israel as this root of evil. Um, and you and when I ask myself, why, where is it coming from? Why do they see us as oppressors? It's because for them, everything white is oppressive. Right. And for them, uh, the white man is oppressor. And all the Jews that they know in America, at least, um, are the billionaires that are in the, in the news. Although they are a minority from our community, they still are the ones that are making the news. Um, they're seeing the Jewish actors that are doing very well in Hollywood, and they often seem to be white for them. And they fail to understand that Jewish identity is not accepted as white by any white supremacists and any of the evil forces they are fighting against. Um, and yet they are parroting the same talking points about the Jewish supremacy, about Jews being oppressors. Those are the talking points of the Nazis. Those are the talking points of white supremacists today. And you can't claim that you are standing against them while repeating the same talking points uh, as they are. Right, and I think this is part of the reason why I don't like the whole thing. Right. Um, you know, because I mean, if we, if we just narrow it to mm. that uh, hierarchy of race, mm. um, which uh, comes from really most recently from critical race theory, the idea that Patricia Bible Panther had that racism is prejudice plus power, mm -hmm. and you need to have the power to make it racism, and therefore because black people are the only ones who can never have power, they cannot be racist, right. um, and white people, by which they include Jews, cannot experience racism. 
um, because you know you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, all this to me makes zero sense at all. And underlying it is the idea that Jews, they don't know quite what to do with Jews because yeah, they've experienced the Holocaust, but they some of them look white. And so the underlying thing seems to be they're so powerful that everyone knows they control the money markets, they control politics, they pull the strings of the media. Therefore, they must be so powerful. They're even more white than white. You know, they're, they're one, um, one term that was flying around a few years ago was they're hyper white. They're hyper white. Yeah. And so how can you um, respect that whole system of thought and yet try yet still maintain an objection to when it is anti-Semitic? Right. Um, yeah, you make really good points. Um, so, something I, I don't know if I fully agree with. I mean, and I wrote about it in, in the book on the idea of critical race theory. And while I do oppose some elements of it, specifically the anti-Semitic elements, um, I, I think that it's at a point right now in the conversation, at least in America and maybe even in the UK, um, I, I don't think there's going back. I don't think that we'll be able to scrap critical race theory or the idea of racism and in society and how it's, and there is truth to how um, how it functions in society, I don't know if the if the idea of uh, um, uh, of Patricia and, and others have been or um, Ibrahim Kennedy or others yeah. are, is, are fully on on the money, but I think that um, there is truth to the point that minorities do experience bigotry in society that is inherent inherent, and they're speaking about um, how everyone are born into racist society. Not sure if it's if it's true that everyone are born racist or being raised racist. Um, but there are elements that I can see from the Jewish community as I live in the West um, that are not, I mean, you know, every Sunday here we are remember that we are not in our homeland because, or this is not a Jewish country. Um, every Christmas we are reminded of it. Every Saturday with the, with the, with the right. Oh, yes, now, now Saturday yeah. too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that the Jewish community or the Jewish people should, should be included in the idea of critical race theory as also a minority, and that's what I'm pushing to change. Um, I mean, if we would be able to live in a world that everyone are equal and there won't be any bigotry and any racism, I'd be, I, I wouldn't think that it's needed. But I just find that, um, and while, again, I do agree with some of the arguments that are made by people that, um, by Jewish people that have different political view than I do about this specific topic, I still think that it's crucial for the Jewish community um, to not just fight against it uh, and to try and figure out a way of how we can be included because those communities and those groups and those um, ideas, I don't think are going anywhere. And it's if I, if I can just um, push you once more on the same topic yes. before we move on, it's, it's so interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, critical race theory and identity politics, the social justice movement, that whole worldview, uh, it comes really from very radical politics. Mm -hmm. You know, like the critical race theory is the racial wing of radical leftist politics. And there's a political wing, uh, obviously, as well. And it's, it's a combination of things, of, of, of Soviet propaganda, anti-Israel propaganda from the Cold War onwards, uh, of, um, of racialized thinking from, from, the, from the black radicals, Malcolm X and Ibrahim um, Kennedy and the, the, the more... Angela more, Davis. Angela yeah. Davis and other people, Stokely Carmichael and W.B. Du Bois. It's all kind of communist, racialized communism, basically. Mm. And all this stuff is, is so shot through with anti-Semitism. And it's so anti-Western. It's anti-capitalist. It's anti-white. It's anti-liberalism. Anti-democratic, actually, in, in many manifestations. Mm. Um, do you not think that the whole thing is a challenge to our liberal way of life and Jews are first in the firing line? Um, I, 
I think that there are challenges among it. I, I don't know if I agree with everything you said, but I do think that there are there are challenges with critical race theory and the way it's been presented uh, and some of the thinkers that have been leading it. I do think that there's some positive point of views there that are talking about how to see the world in a way that we can understand other people's oppression. And there is, I mean, we will never be able, I don't think, uh, my, my position is that we'll never be able to understand what it's like for a black person to experience racism in white society. By the way, I think there's also racism, and that's something that I disagree with them. There's racism in the Middle East. There's racism in, you know, there's people of color can be racist. Better, yeah. Right, absolutely. In, in, in Gaza and in, and in the West Bank, absolutely. But I just think that it's, um, um, it's, it's, a, it's a premise of the world that, um, that is interesting and, and worthy of, our, of us looking into. And at the end of the day, nothing has to be perfect for, for us to engage with. Um, I just... I have to say, I don't think that the Jewish community should be the ones leading the fight against critical race theory, personally, right, right. Um, because I don't think it it helps um, the fight against anti-Semitism within progressive circles, which is, that's my focus. Um, I guess I was mainly saying that we are first in their fight, rather than right. we're first fighting. No, no, I, I wasn't referring to that. I was right. I was speaking on some of the voices, like um, people that I really respect on other issues, like Barry Weiss, I think she's brilliant, and I loved her book about anti-Semitism. But when it comes to critical race theory, I don't think she should be, because she's so popular and so predominant, um, and, and also she wrote a book on how to fight anti-Semitism. Um, so today, when she's one of the main voices against critical race theory, I personally, um, I think that it's a, it's a challenge. So, yeah, but that's, you know, we can disagree, and that's what Jewish, sure. being Jewish is about, right? Okay, so let's move on from, from that. I want yeah. to talk to you about, um, about the Arab world. Uh, I mean, it's been so striking over the past few weeks, uh, eight, ten weeks since October the 7th, um, to look at the how the Arab world has has reacted um, outside Israel, fine, but more so inside Israel, Israeli Arabs. I mean, that's been one of the few rays of light, actually, in a very depressing uh, and troubling and disturbing story, mm. is how Israeli Arabs have largely pulled behind Israel, on the whole, in a way that people hadn't anticipated. Mm. And as somebody yourself of, of Arabic heritage, Jewish Arabic heritage, how, is, how have you felt about all that? How have you experienced that? What are your reflections and thoughts on that? Yeah, um, well, the, first of all, the, the reaction of Israeli Arabs is, uh, is amazing um, in facing this. I mean, I think it's the brutality of October 7th was so terrible for, um, for, I mean, for anyone, but specifically for Arab Israelis that um, are, their identity is inherently tied to Palestinians. I mean, some of them also identify as Palestinians. So to have this being done on the name of Palestine, Palestinian identity, Arab identity, um, was, I, I think it was terrible for them to see it. And I think in Israel, they saw it more than we saw it in the West even. I mean, you and I probably have seen most of the footage and most of the information that came out of, of, of Israel um, after October 7th. But I don't, think if, I don't think it was that permanent in the media as we experienced it. Like, I don't think that they have really showed all the gruesome uh, parts. They've shown a lot of the gruesome parts from the Palestinian side, but not from our side. So um, I think it's just inevitable for people that live in a democratic society that um, respect the law and, and um, democracy and democratic values to see this done by people that share the same ethnic, ethnicity as they do, or at least uh, the same identity as they do, um, and and just deny it and reject it. So um, I think that's that was one positive outcome. The, the fact that for a long time, the, um, the countries of the Abraham Accords um, left their ambassadors in Israel. Some of them had to pull them back, and I understand the pressure in the Arab world, but, um, but that was a very positive thing to see. 
Um, but when we speak about Arab identity, the Jews that lived in the Middle East and North Africa for so long, they never um, enjoyed the benefit of being Arabs. Um, and that's, I think, an important point because, and that's why I use the, the term Mizrahi more than uh, Arabs. And I, uh, when I ask my family if they ever use the term Arab Jew, they always said, they, they always laugh because for them, they don't, they don't see themselves as Arab, even though they speak Arabic. But Arab identity is an imperial identity that was reserved only for Muslims in the Middle East. Um, they could have become Arabs if they shed their Jewish identity and converted to Islam. But much like uh, Copts, uh, uh, Yazidis, Amazigh, um, uh, Kurds, yes, absolutely. All of those religious indigenous minority communities to the Middle East um, are not identifying as Arabs. No Kurd would say, I'm an Arab Kurd, or, uh, or Yazidi would say, I'm an Arab Yazidi. Those are uh, communities that have been oppressed for so long under Arab rule. There's, there's an Arab empire that I think people tend to, f to forget in the context of this conflict. Interesting. But in, in terms of the um, Arab citizens of Israel, mm. Arab Israelis, uh, I mean, I think it's difficult to overstate how much of a sea change there was by comparison to 2021. In 2021, when there was the conflict with Gaza, which was much smaller, mm -hmm. uh, there was rioting between Jewish and Arab communities in mixed areas, and there were people were talking about fears of a, of a civil war. Mm -hmm. And the opposite has happened now, really. I mean, there's, there have been some extremism and some problems, but on the whole, the Arab community have been saving. I mean, some Arabs saved Jews on October the 7th. Some Arabs were killed by Hamas. Arabs are now fighting in the IDF against Hamas on the front lines. And Mansour Abbas, the most prominent Arab-Israeli leader, uh, sacked a member of his own party immediately when she suggested that some of the footage of October the 7th may have been fabricated. This is quite strong, strongly positive stuff. And it shows to me um, a glimmer of hope that you know, Muslims aren't the problem. Islam is not the problem. We all know that, but sometimes people begin to say that. Mm. And Israel provides an example of liberalism once again, that Muslim citizens could be as, uh, can I identify as powerfully with the state as Jewish citizens in, in certain contexts anyway. Right. Um, do you relate to them with your Arabic background, or sorry, with your Mizrahi background? <laughs> do you relate to them in a, in a special way? Do you, share, do you share, do you speak Arabic? Do you share some language with them? And and uh, some commonality there. Do you, do you feel that? Yeah, it's it's interesting because that's a question that I also discuss in the book, that the idea of am I a minority of Jewish, of Jew, am I a Jewish minority within an Arabic or Middle Eastern population or am I a Middle Eastern minority or not even minority actually, but almost half um, of, of the Jewish community at large. And it's something that I always think about where, where do I find myself? I, I do find a lot of commonality with um, the language and the uh, cuisine and the culture and um, but but there's still the, the the main difference is my Jewish identity so I can find some similarity and some ways to connect to um, to Arab Israelis but it's uh, I think that at the end it's the Jewish identity I'm, I'm first of all I'm Jewish and I think that's the main difference that I find there and I think that um, for it, while it's so amazing to see this connection and this support um, um, for me, there's still this distinction between those identities. Right. And do you feel that you relate to um, Arab Israelis better than Ashkenazi Jews in Israel might? Do you feel that? <laughs> Could be. Um, I've, you know, I gave it some thought in the past, but um, there, there, is, um, there is, I think, the reason that so many Mizrahim today in Israel are voting to the right and are more nationalistic than the left in Israel. The left in Israel is almost completely led by um, Ashkenazi Jews. And myself and a few other Mizrahi. Um, but I think that the connection comes from the experience and the trauma that they had in the Middle East by um, by Arab countries. 
and they came to Israel and they carried this trauma. My grandmother had this trauma, had to relive this trauma in 1991 when um, Saddam Hussein was launching rockets into, into Israel. They thought they escaped the Iraqi government and here they are chasing them. Um, and then in the Intifada, and even now, when I'm speaking to my grandmother, what she talks about is, is the Farhud, those days of attacks and, and, and how Jews were being brutalized in, in Arab countries, in Iraq specifically. The, the Farhud, as people don't know, is the pogroms in 1941 in Iraq, yeah. mainly, uh, which uh, results in the expulsion of Jews from there alongside the entirety of the Arab, of the Arab world in general. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the main events that has led to uh, later on there was also hanging, public hangings of Jews in and, and 1969, um, and it led to the fact that Jews were ethnically cleansed from the Middle East. That's why it's so fascinating to see people using the term ethnic cleansing uh, to what's going on, to the war that's going on in, in Gaza, uh, which is terrible and every life is important. But when I compare it to Tunisia, where my family was uh, living at, and Iraq, um, from to almost 200 and, uh, 250,000 people were completely ethnically cleansed from both of those countries. In total, almost a million people were forced out from every Arab and Muslim country um, prior to the creation of Israel. It started at least a decade before that, that we were forced out. Um, my family specifically left in 1951, but so many others lost everything they had and they came to Israel. Today, are, the majority in Israel is, uh, is either first, second or third generation Jews from the Middle East in North Africa. Um, I think it's about 53%. Um, but, and I think that's why um, a lot of them are so nationalistic uh, for Israel. And nationalism in, in Israel, I think, is very different than nationalism in America, let's say, because um, in Israel, it means being united. It doesn't mean that one group of people should receive more rights than others. It's more about the protecting of the country. Uh, and I think that's why you're seeing people like um, uh, Yusuf Haddad and um, Muhammad Zuabi. There's a few Arab Israelis that are receiving so much support from the right wing in Israel, um, and they are being embraced uh, as Arab Israelis. Um, so I think that's another fascinating um, way, way that Israeli society has re reacted to this, um, being nationalistic and yes, yet pluralistic in the same time. Right, and people don't realize that, that in terms of the Palestinian refugees, there are about 700, 750,000 of them, but Jewish refugees in the Middle East were more, 900,000 or something, about 2 yeah. million. Um, Okay, well, let's talk about um, social media because that's your that's your world, that's your expertise, that's your where your prominence is, that's your lifeblood. Mm. Um, one thing that I know a lot of uh, Jews have experienced since October the seventh is uh, the stress and trauma of being on social media. Uh, people have got into arguments with their friends, former friends, acquaintances, strangers online in a way that they hadn't before. Uh, they felt that almost like this is their fight. Uh, on social media, uh, and they're not always equipped to deal with that level of stress, particularly when it's people that you thought were on your side. Um, this is something that you must be very familiar with because you attract a lot of hate because of your prominence. Does it get to you? Um, I used to say, no, it doesn't get to me, but I think the last two months, over two months, has been um, much more difficult than it used to be. I mean, I always got death threats and uh, people attacking me on every college campuses I go to, I get, you know, protests and, um, uh, but on social media, the last like two months have been just uh, horrific. I think it's one of the worst times I, I had in my life, I would say, to, to experience constant hate and, and, um, and I mean, people would go to, as far as creating like graphic designing, design of my face and, and, uh, videos and, uh, send me my address. Um, 
a lot of it has been very challenging. I mean, I think when the worst was when the Met Police was sharing one of my tweets of uh, of the protest in in London and started the Palestinian protest, um, where I posted a um, a flag of of Al Qaeda and I said it's not an ISIS flag, it's Al Qaeda flag, and the Met Police decided to share my tweet with the world and tell them. Um, this guy is wrong. It's not an ISIS. It's the same thing that I said, which was bizarre. And for hours, it was up there. And I got... Oh, so you were trolled by the Met Police. The Met Police was trolling me, yeah. Right. Yeah. And Thanks, Met Police. <laughs> right. And it's, it's wild. And I saw them doing it to many other Jews. But And I reached out to them, and I tried to get them to remove it. They, they wouldn't remove it. Um, it was up for hours. I got um, so many organizations, even Muslim associations in London, um, sending me messages and calling me Islamophobic. And really, they put a target on my back, which was terrible to see. Um, but yeah, so it's, it comes with a, with a big, I have, I have to pay a big price for being so vocal and permanent. But has it, has it uh, manifested in, in real life, as it were? Do you have people recognizing you or, or is your security compromised in your daily life? Um, I, sometimes I would get, I mean, it's not as often I can counted on one hand uh, the times that people would see me in the street and say something or, or say free Palestine or in my gym, um, people being like hostile to me. Um, but actually, actually the, the positive thing is that I can tell you of so many incidents in, in London, people would come up to me and say how grateful they are that I'm speaking up, how uh, I gave them strength. Just today, there was three people on my way here that right. stopped me, which was incredible to see that. Um, they recognized you and yeah. stopped you and said, you're doing a great job. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so what advice do you give to people who are struggling with this? Because, you know, this is something that you've become accustomed to because of your high prominence. But a lot of people who I know, that's not their world. They're just ordinary people, but they end up getting into these fights and attracting all of this stuff. Mm. Uh, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I would say the default should be 95% of the time, don't engage with bigots and trolls and anti-Semites online. When someone doesn't see your humanity, there's no way that you can convince them of uh, to change their mind. So I would say generally don't engage. The times that you can engage is, is if someone has um, some political power or some capital in online that you want to, um, to make a statement that other people would see it. Um, but generally, don't engage. And, and even if you want to engage with someone, you know, I always think to myself, do, do I want to get into this conversation with a person that has some opinions that um, are, you know, that sound like a troll? Um, so I would, I would say avoid that. I, I don't think I've ever spent time a day arguing with trolls that I ended with feeling like I, I won uh, anything, you know, it's never, nobody, nobody wins. <laughs> nobody wins. Yeah. So, so just ignore them as much as you can take a step back, you know, touch grass and come back because it's, we're sucked into it. And that's something that I feel like I'm, I'm often, I need to take a break from, from my phone and my computer and just go outside and come back to it because um, we've been, we're getting wrapped in this, into this world and it's just not a reality. Most people out there, I think are, and they hate anti-Semitism. They don't support. I mean, we've seen some polling that was <laughs> challenging what I'm going to say. But by and large, it's still. I mean, I think by and large, people are um, supporting Israel's right to defend itself, support the Jewish people. They hate Nazis. They hate Hamas. They hate the pro-Hamas protests here. Um, and they want to support us. So remind yourself of that when you're surrounded by so many trolls. That are, Some of them are from Iran. Some of them are from Russia. Some of them are from Qatar. And they might seem real to you, but they're not. So... Um, Right. Take care of your mental health, I would say. Right, and I think, in fact, personally, I, I um, in the first week after October 7th, it hit everybody, and um, I got swept into a lot of stuff on TV and social media and writing, and it was like like everybody, I was really exhausted and strung out, and mm. 
emotionally distressed and just drained, but still feeling I had to fight the fight. And they got to the Shabbat. And um, Rob Rinder, who's a friend of mine, who's a columnist for the JC, sent me a message saying, will you promise me that you'll take Shabbat off and won't look at any of the stuff? I wrote back to him saying, you don't understand. All this stuff is happening. If I don't do this, who else will? You know, uh, Hezbollah uh, might come in in the north. And, you know, all this, there's all these threats. He was like, Jake, that will still be there the next day. Mm. And he was right. So I took that time out. And it was as if I'd taken a month off. Because the next day I, I got up and I was like, wait, I have a sense of perspective again. And it really helps, doesn't it, to take a bit of time away. Yeah, absolutely. Do you do anything else, by the way? When, you, when you're stressed on, online, like, do you take uh, working out? Does that help? Or like walking or... Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a cyclist. Okay. Or at least I was before October the 7th for <laughs> a few years. And now, since October the 7th, I've, my training has drastically reduced. But yeah. that's when I get the headspace, when I, when I can get out on my bike and just concentrate on the road and, yeah. and the speed and, and stuff um, and the pain. Yeah. And that, that obliterates all my other thoughts. And then I come back and, and I have a fresh, a fresh mind again. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. So that, I was going to say that as well. I mean, for me working out, I, I do all those... Um, hellish um uh trainings in uh barry's boot camp type thing that you're you have to <laughs> you, you, they're killing you in like 45 minutes um and it's terrible i don't know why i do this i well i do know why i do this to myself it's so hard that i forget about everything um and i found a jewish trainer there that she's uh, her name is honey she's amazing um so every time honey i go to her honey honey yeah okay. and she, every time i go to her class i feel so good because okay. it's like i feel safe but okay. yeah but anyway that's that's something that helps me take my mind off of things yeah. so i i try to do that at least one once okay. a day Great. So shout out to Honey if you're watching. <laughs> um, right, the last question I wanted to ask you just before we, we wrap up is about being an activist. Uh, because I sometimes wonder, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist, so I'm, I'm a, a, in a bit of a different uh, space, although we overlap sometimes, in particular times like these. Mm. But I sometimes wonder if when you're an activist, do you feel like you're, you're so much sort of Team Israel that you can lose your objectivity, that you're, in a way, you're, you find yourself obliged to take a pro-Israel point of view all the time and you don't have the, do you lose the ability to judge each case on its merits and make a, 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 a judgment as you go along? You see it, what I'm trying to say? Yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting you're bringing it up because I just had this like, um, not crisis, but like mini crisis yesterday that I was thinking, wait, why am I, I was going to share some of the spokespeople, uh, the Israeli spokespeople, the official ones uh, comment. And, and then I said to myself, wait, like two months ago, I would never do that. I, uh, three months ago, I was uh, I was in the protest against Netanyahu. I support, you know, I, I support democrat, dem, democratic Israel. I, I oppose the judicial overall. I love Israel. I'm a Zionist. I always was a Zionist, um, but I have different political views than Netanyahu's spokespeople. Um, uh, although they said some things that really I agree, I could agree with. So I, generally saying, I, I I think you know you can agree with some people and disagree about some other things, and it's still okay. Um, I'm really against cancel culture, um, but I but then I, I thought about it more deeply, and I think that since October seventh, I was so um, on the Israel side because I was attacked all the time. And when you are attacked, the the only response that you can I mean, some people have different response. For me, it's a, it's about defending and and coming together. And I think the Jewish community have have done that. We all came together and supported one another. Um, and I think that now when, the, um, when Israel has the upper hand, and yet there are hostages that we have to release and we have to do everything to release them. Um, but I think I started thinking about things in, in a different way and try to see the Palestinian perspective of what was always, I mean, I'm pro two-state solution, I support Palestinian rights and uh, I support equality in Israel, 
Um, so it was very important to, for me to go back to my origins and, and look into into this conflict in, in this, you know, in, in, on both sides. And, and I can recognize the Palestinians truly are suffering um, in, in Gaza. And I know that it's Hamas's fault. Um, but I also challenge, I mean, I think that it's important, and I know that they're doing it in Israel. And I have friends in the army that are in Gaza right now, and I love them and care for them, and I'm afraid every day. But, um, but I think Israel should hold itself to a higher standard than Hamas. Of course we are. Um, but we should also hold ourselves to a higher standard than other Western countries, um, because our values and our core and who we are um, should never be lost when we're fighting a monster. That's what Nietzsche was saying, how when you fight, fight a monster, you must, never, you must be very careful not to turn into, into one. I don't think Israel is even close to turning into one. But I think we have to hold ourselves um, accountable and make sure that we are being the, the most moral army that I served in, that I know it is, uh, and continue doing it this way. Okay, well... Uh, thank you very much for, for, for joining us today. Uh, this is a reminder to those watching on YouTube that you can also listen to this as a podcast. And people listening to this as a podcast, you can also <laughs> see this on YouTube. Uh, if you are listening to it as a podcast, you won't be able to see what I'm doing now, which is holding up a copy of your book, which is called The Wrong Kind of Jew, a Mizrahi Manifesto. Uh, so, Ken, once again, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs>